Hello everyone. Before we start today's podcast, some exciting news for you. You can experience the Inside Politics podcast live in Dublin on May 16th when Hugh Linehan, Jennifer Bray and I will be joined by Cliff Young of Ipsos, one of America's top pollsters, to talk about the US election, our own local and European elections and much more. It's a breakfast event kicking off at 8am in Trinity College. If you'd like to attend, you can get tickets at irishtimes.com forward slash events. That's irishtimes.com forward slash events. I hope we see lots of you there. It's Wednesday, April the 3rd, and you're very welcome to the Inside Politics podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan, and I'm sure you might be delighted to hear that this is a Brexit-free zone today. I was joined in studio by our political editor, Pat Leahy, and the Green Party leader, Eamon Ryan. Uh, A little bit later, we discussed climate change, carbon tax, and the challenges facing the Green Party itself. But first, I asked him about his meeting yesterday with Mark Zuckerberg. It went well. I thought it was very useful. We were in for about an hour and a quarter very policy-focused, um, myself, Hildegard Nocton and James Lawless. Why you three? I think we were invited uh, by them. We were on this international grant. It sounds like the International Grant um, in Inquisition Committee, but it's, it's the International Grant Committee, I think it is, on Disinformation and Fake News. It's quite a title. It is. We were in, myself and Hildegard went to Westminster before Christmas, they had done a major study on the back of what happened in Brexit. You remember that during that Brexit and the Trump vote, there was major controversy, rightly, about the use of Facebook by all sorts of forces to try and influence the referendum. So they're steaming mad in the UK because of that. They did a very good, I thought, detailed forensic. I mean, incredible. If you want to kind of read a pa- uh, John le Carre page turn to read some of the evidence to that committee, from what was going on but different state actors and other actors. It's just incredible stuff. It's straight out of James Bond or Le Carrier. Um, so we were very, it was very useful to, to attend that and we agreed, actually I think it was at our suggestion that we needed further international meetings. There's one coming up in Canada, in Ottawa in the end of May and there'll be one in Dublin in November. So first thing we asked was, because the big controversy in London, Westminster was that Mark Zuckerberg didn't turn up and um, so we're saying turn up in Dublin and I suppose as European headquarters for Facebook and as headquarters for so many international companies, we have a special obligation to get regulation of the internet right. My contribution, um, I was basically saying two or three things. There was a very good video where Mark Zuckerberg set, set out his case in, in a debate in Harvard a few weeks ago. So I was just going through that. In there, he said, in terms of how do you, to answer the question, how do you get good quality news feeds, journalism? And um, he said, well, we could do crowdsourcing. And I just think, no, I think we need actually a change in the business model so that there is funding of journalism to 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 get the sort of fairness and balance and quality control that you need in any news media organization. And I think Facebook is in that space. Um, secondly, he was saying in terms of what should they take down or not, he's rightly saying that they shouldn't be the final arbiters. But what he's suggesting is that they would set up an international board that would act as an independent arbiter final decision making on what they take down or not, harmful content. And I was saying, no, I, I don't think it can be in any way connected to Facebook. It has to be due process, court-based, independent in terms of what's the regulation we have. And thirdly and lastly, and perhaps most importantly, and I'm influenced here by my European colleagues and are going into that meeting representing the European Greens as much as the Irish Greens so that we have real power because it was the European Greens effectively led out the GDPR directive 
Um, and I think in the next parliament, we hope to hold the balance of power in the European Parliament. And the European Parliament and Council is one of the few institutions that has actually regulatory power over these companies just because of scale and because European standards tend to be adopted in the digital world as the global standards, unless you're in China or whatever. So I was there representing the European Green Party saying, we want to see the entire business model changed. And I think actually there are various ways you can do that. Commissioner Vestager is doing it with kind of large fines. Um, Madeleine Waring is looking, or um, Senator um, Warren in the States is looking to split up the company. I think one of the mechanisms I was pushing is that actually you have to offer a subscription model rather than just free advertising model. And one of the benefits of that is a subscription model would have to be cost plus. In other words, okay, what's the cost of running your platform? You add a margin for the company. That's the subscription cost. WhatsApp was set up, I think, with an original idea, the founders, that you would do, it would be a one euro a year charge, a billion euros, you've got enough to run the platform. Whereas what we have is we've got companies like Google and Facebook that are so powerful because of the monopoly they have on the data about us. They know more about us than our mothers do. And in that knowledge, their ability to charge actually a massive supernormal profit. They're operating as monopolies with monopoly profits. And until you attack that or change that fundamental um, market uh, failing, uh, you won't get other companies being developed. You won't. You'll have a, an impowerful imbalance between the rights of the company and the rights of the individual and how our data is used. That's actually one of the things I was saying is, I'm sorry, we are going to have to take on your monopoly. I mean, that all sounds very reasonable to me, but I think it also seems to me that there's a logical next step to everything that you've said there, which is that the combination of the surveillance economy, which has been developed by these these companies, plus their monopolies – uh, and effectively, I mean, in some countries, Facebook is the internet, and we've seen really negative impacts out of that as well. And you put those two things together and, and look at that fundamental business model upon which these vast empires are now based, and reform is not an option. They actually need to be broken. That business model needs to be broken. It's poisonous. It's toxic. It's having a really negative impact on our societies. They refuse responsibility. They come out every couple of months and they say, oh, sorry, yes, we now recognize that, you know, we shouldn't have been doing this. Hands up. We won't do it again. That no matter how punitive the fines coming from the EU, they're not really fundamentally changing their behavior. It's not easy stuff to regulate because it's so complex and it's changing. The technology is changing. And with the arrival of artificial intelligence, machine learning and the Internet of Things, that power of surveillance is actually going to exponentially grow. So we have to get it right. Um, One of the ways you get it right, I think, is you start with first principles in terms of – and sometimes the principles conflict. Like you want – principle of privacy, but you want at the same time security, transparency. You know, there's various principles you may want. But you do have to start, I think, in the the kind of mapping out what are the basic principles. And in fairness to what Mark Zuckerberg said in response to us yesterday, he said they would be adopting GDPR across the globe. And one of the reasons they would is because it does follow a principles-based approach. And the alternative may be where you have state actors uh, locking down the internet completely and actually operating a state surveillance system that is really damaging. But I agree with you. I think the internet has such promise, it's such uh, opportunity for us, it, it provides such capability in terms of proving efficiency and communications and connections. And there are examples. We all like, I love WhatsApp, I'll be honest, in terms of I like the humor on it, I like the ability to communicate people. And similarly, I'm using all these platforms, so I'd be a bit cynical to say, oh, you know, we dumped a lot. No, you want to keep what's good in the technology, but you want to avoid what is happening, 
One of the things I handed over yesterday, I was given a document in the morning showing some of the growth of really um, fairly offensive, insulting kind of activity communities online who are using the platforms in a way that's really damaging social cohesion or social... um, Like, Like what kind of thing? Like a lot of the very far right stuff that is now starting to develop. They, they, there was a survey done about five years ago, four years ago, we had about three or four sites that would have been centered around really anti-immigrant, anti-Muslim, kind of uh, uh, anti-climate change. It tends to be a kind of collection of, of views come together. That's grown now to about 40, 50 sites on Facebook pages, which, which are kind of espousing that kind of, with about 130,000 followers. These are Irish sites now? Yeah. Yeah. And, and we want to avoid one of the things that happened in Britain or in America, where do you get... Now, I don't think you completely censor that. There's People have a right to express different opinions, but at a certain point where it develops into real hate speech and the real development of a toxic culture online, I think there is a valid question to say, is the business model and is that whole... Um, that unregulated uh, area creating a, a, a communications that's really harmful. And anyone in politics would know it. You go door to door in politics, by and large, it would reaffirm your faith in human nature. People are by and large decent. Now, you can have a row on the door, you can have different opinions, but most times you do it in a way that is actually you come away feeling, oh, well, we had a good row, but, you know, it, it, was, it was respectful. Online, it's not. And, and I think there is a valid question to ask. Is there any, do we have to have this kind of constant stream of Facebook commentary at the end of everything you do, which is just in, like, the nastiest of personal invective, no matter which side you're on the debate? Um, but the argument is that, that in Facebook, I'll bring you in, in a sec now, Pat, is that in, in Facebook and in somewhat different manners, say, for example, with, um, with YouTube, which, of course, is, is owned by Google, is that the... The algorithms, the, the artificial intelligence, if you like, which is which is underwriting, uh, which is privileging so, some information over others, which is encouraging some kinds of activity and behaviour over, over others, drives people to those kinds of and that, extreme behaviours. And that's why having a subscription-based service may slightly change that. Now, what Mark Zuckerberg is saying is the vast, vast, vast majority of people prefer not to pay and to use the advertising-based model to kind of... But if after a period of time, that then calls into question the actual quality of the information that you're receiving, is there a possibility that that will switch? And if there was a subscription-based model, which at the same level of breadth of connectivity, where you're still connecting into a two billion person system, but where it's, it's not necessarily creating that kind of clickbait, uh, advertising-led news and media and other content, uh, then I think it, that may change. And one of the things the other s- he said as well, which I think is true, it is changing anyway. I mean, a lot of the communications online now, networks are going towards private, encrypted. Sure. WhatsApp is encrypted. Which, which, which brings a whole other set of challenges. I mean, yeah. And again, and that was one of the things we were discussing yesterday in some detail. Sorry for going all over the place, but this is the nature of one and a half, mm. one and a quarter hour discussion. We were jumping in and out of these big issues. On that issue, what uh, he's promoting privacy, but then at the same time saying, uh, actually, the security systems will have to have some mechanism of assessing what's happening on encrypted services. So for checking terrorist threats, I asked him, well, how do you do that? I got the sense was it was through the use of metadata to kind of follow, you know, see unusual patterns. There's so many complex issues on mm. this. It's the devil and all to get right. But we need in this country particularly to set high standards and to be good at this and to get it right. Because with 50,000 people working in this in my own city in the, in the industry, with, um, we have a special responsibility to set the bar high and to understand what's happening.
look, let's not be naive about this. Facebook is worth $500 billion. Mark Zuckerberg has a personal fortune of $62 billion. Eamon talks about, you know, we have to get them to change the business model. They're not going to be persuaded to change the business model. The only way they will change their business model and their business practices if they, is if they are forced to do so. The only way they can be forced to do so is not by individual govern, governments acting, uh, acting on their own, but by transnational agreements and by multinational organisations like, uh, like the EU. That's the only way it's going to happen. And all, uh, all the meetings, and I don't denigrate the u- usefulness or the utility of it, or all the meetings with... Uh, Zuckerberg and, uh, you know, all the conferences won't change that. Facebook will not change its business model until it is forced to. Why? Because it has made the people who decide upon that business model extraordinarily wealthy, wealthy beyond anybody's wildest dreams. So the only way it's going to be done is if they, the only way they will do it voluntarily is if they think it is inevitable that they will be forced to do it on more uncomfortable terms than they can choose to do in advance of that. No, you're right, Pat. And that's why I said the first thing I said yesterday is I'm here representing the European Green Party. I, I, I've just take, come off the phone from, to, my, to my colleagues in Brussels and here's what we think because that is the only thing that gives you real power and that's why we're going to Ottawa in terms of to connect with not just the Canadian government with, with the, from parliamentarians from across the world. I, I think the only reason the European Union is the effective power is that those international organisations while they're useful there is no organisation. Europe is the only institution that can set the legislative and set the uh, and has the ECJ, the court, the European Court of Justice, has the mechanisms to actually regulate the internet. And I think that's why they were here yesterday, because they recognise the, we're pressure. part of that European they're, system. And they're actually, under the pressure. Man, Zuckerberg the man, and these guys are under pressure. They're under, attack, uh, under pressure on tax, on regulation, on the governance of online contact. Uh, they but, do, but they have the resources to fight, you know, inch by inch. And in the same way as, you know, people increasingly make comparisons with things like the big tobacco 20 or 30 years ago, the alcohol industry, we see the infants of it here. Companies These that new industries are, are, are just as powerful as those were. And it would require a, an equal level of sort of political activity and force and, and scale. And I do hmm. wonder, I mean, I look at things, I don't I, I don't necessarily want to slag her off, but I was looking at your dull colleague Hildegard Nocton yesterday making kind of suggestions about things like that people could show their PPS numbers to prove their age uh, on Facebook. I mean, the last thing I want to do, I mean, I've got off Facebook anyway, is give them any more bloody information at all. So there is a kind of, there's a kind of naivety, well, there naivety here a, on, there, on, the, on the side of our elected politicians. There's a sense that they're not quite up to speed on the, on the intellectual challenge which this poses as well. Yeah, I think be- partly that's because it's such a novel problem. And as Eamon says, the speed with which the technology has developed. I mean, you know, government could have regulated MySpace five years ago. Where the hell would that uh, leave us now? And it is extraordinarily complex. But the tasks of government are complex. And some parts of it aren't complex, actually. Parts of it, like the regulation of election spending, is not complex. We've managed to do it offline, but there is no significant progress being made towards regulating online election spending. We have to rely on Facebook and on Google, as they did during the uh, abortion referendum campaign, to introduce voluntary regulations on that, to police the police our election laws themselves with laws that they decide on with no... Which was a sign of political failure. 
yes, in this country. Yes, yes, it is. So not not alone is it because things are complex, but there is a lack of political will to do it. And partly that's because, as Eamon says, there's however 50,000, 60,000 people working in the industry in this, uh, uh, in this city. And because no Irish government wants to offend or discombobulate a US multinational. And that's understandable, but there is a hierarchy of political imperatives. And what here, about that reality, uh, Eamon? What about that suggestion that, to, to use a, a phrase popular across the water at the moment, that there's an element of vassalage here in the relationship between Ireland and these countries and that they have other kinds of discussions with senior senior political figures which true. are about their economic power. That it's they true. Here. Back when the, the privacy directive, the GDPR, was being at the early stages, the Taoiseach openly, and Facebook acknowledged it, was kind of lobbying on behalf, the Irish government was lobbying effectively on behalf of the digital companies to try and weaken that legislation. I think that was a mistake because in the long run, um, your location as a centre for this will depend on having a good reputation, not for shepherding the companies through a kind of difficult things, but actually from standing up for, for first principles. We could start. I would agree with Pat. I mean, on the issue of political advertising here, like it's three years since the Brexit referendum and we all knew, and then the Trump vote, two years, whatever, that we knew that there was an issue around the use of Facebook, even at that time. So three years, nothing has happened. James Lawless put, introduced a bill uh, which uh, the government are not enacting or not moving forward. Even to this extent, we've asked each of the parties and each of the TDs, can you provide us publicly what your advertising budget is through Facebook or YouTube or other online sites? And to date, most of the parties, the larger parties in particular, have refused. And and I think we could start on that. That that wouldn't even take legislation. That would take a half an hour to go through your account and see how much have I spent on YouTube, how much have I spent on Facebook advertising. Here it is. And, and I think say why they've refused. No. Fine Gael have been beaten around the bush on it. We've come back several times. I'll have to ask them again. But they're, they're all in principle. Oh, yes, we're all in favour of this. We're all in favour of transparency and good regulation. But they won't give us what their actual full budget is. And we could start with that tomorrow. Maybe the paper could ask each of them again. What do you think, Pat? I, Every time I look at my feed, I have Shane Ross looking at me. Who to follow? Now, why am I getting Shane Ross all the time on my feet? You're living a nightmare there, Eamon. <laughs> I say nothing. <laughs> that, no, we leave it for a second and we'll come back and discuss the Green Party itself. You're listening to the Irish Times. Pat, you did an interesting column last Saturday. In fact, you have an interesting column most Saturdays, to be fair. Um, I didn't have to point that out. Um, there's, uh, you touched on the fortunes of the Green Party and how it stands in the, in the landscape of Irish politics. I was reflecting on the achievement of the committee on uh, climate action last week in producing um, uh, an action plan, not unanimously in re- respect of one of the important aspects of it, uh, which I, I guess we might talk about on the the, the carbon tax, but reflecting that, you know, this is evidence of a growing consensus in Irish politics, which in turn reflects, I think, a public belief that climate change and measures to deal with climate change is one of the biggest, if not the biggest, uh, public policy issues facing the Irish government and governments all over the world uh, at the moment. And yet, the party that is most associated with uh, environmental issues, with climate action, the Green Party, is uh, not making any progress in the polls, to put it uh, at, its, uh, at its kindness. And I was wondering why that is. Um, why do you think it is? 
Uh, I think there's I think there's a couple of reasons. Um, I think that in an increasingly fractured political landscape, I think it's very difficult for small parties to to break through and get their message uh, in front of the in front of the public, and also it's a difficult message uh, to sell because a lot of climate action measures the government might take in response uh, to, to climate change, such as a carbon tax, uh, are a difficult a difficult sell. The second reason, I think, is, is related to that, and that's that I fear that many Irish people are uh, more rhetorically committed to climate action than they are practically committed to it. And I summarise that in uh, by by quoting uh, what, what I can assure listeners is uh, a real conversation along the lines of, uh, Mum, Mum, can you collect me from the climate march? There's a lot there, Eamon. Yeah, and there was also a comment in the article, which I think is a valid one in terms of looking at, we, we, we have to look at ourselves, you know, how come, uh, what sort of story are we telling? How come we're not uh, getting that vote up? Um, although I would say after the article on the day after, the, we went up 1% in the polls, which is, and politicians always do that. They'll say, oh, I don't take any heed to the polls. And then if they go up a bit, they say, oh, it's great. We're, if we're gone down one, again. you would have said margin of error. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> but, um, but no, but the wider question is, um, particularly when you compare it to our European colleagues who are really on the rise. There's a green wave right across Europe. In Germany, the Greens are on 20%, guts of. Same in Belgium, Holland, uh, Finland, all the usual suspects. But but still, it, it's it really, even in France, it's, it's it's really happening. It's a, so, a reference this in the article that, did, that yeah. actually there was, a, there was a poll in Germany last week that had the Greens on over 18%. And it really is, yeah. it seems to me, a structural realigning of of German politics, that the, the Greens are in, uh, in in power in, I think, 12 out of the 16 yeah, and, uh, and, and the very fact, states in Germany. Uh, um, so we need to have the same aspiration to really become a mainstream, big Irish political party to meet the scale of the challenge, not just in climate change, but also the destruction of nature that's happening. The biodiversity crisis is also something that we kind of have a real interest in and capability on trying to solve. And I think it is it, our, our real job is to, is to explain a slightly wider understanding of this, not just to be seen as you know, just technocratic experts in climate, although we have that. There is a, there's a bigger gap in Irish politics and indeed politics across Europe. For Take a long-term perspective. For 35 or so years after the Second World War, the story was a social democrat one. Social Democrats will will provide you, government will provide you with health, health education, housing against big bad business. That I'm old enough to remember in the late 70s no longer became a credible story. It was replaced with market knows best. Market will protect you, provide you for your, all your needs. And that, as we all know, by about 2008, it was no longer credible, not just because of the crash, because of the patent inequalities that was coming with it. For 10 years, we've been slightly in this kind of weird no story or national, a false national story, a story that replaced that market one, you know, that people or individuals know best with a kind of a collective story. But it was it was a nationalist one. It was Brexit in Britain or it was Trump in America. But it's not a it's not a compelling story. It's not it doesn't have real um, truth to it, in my mind. There is a new story starting to grow. It's in America. You see it. It's in Europe. It is about a Green New Deal which delivers a just transition. So it's a different economy and it's a better economy. And it's an economy that does tackle climate change and loss of biodiversity. But the other aspect of it is it's a different economic model. It's not just market knows best individual profit. Uh, it, it gives you your steer to the future. 
it is a more collective. It has the state more involved. It still involves enterprise, but it's business which builds community and business which is inspired with other values than profit maximization. That's our story. So does that mean and it's a new vision of the left then? Because, I mean, for example, what's happening in Germany, it seems to be, is that the Greens are, are replacing uh, it is. The, the old Social Democrat Party. It is. Certainly a it is. And, 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 and it's a left which is not so bloody superior that I won't touch the right. You know what I mean? To make the scale of change we need to make on climate, like it's such an amazing challenge, the scale of the change. We need everyone. We need every place. And we're changing everything. We're changing the entire food, transport, uh, housing, energy systems, industrial systems all have to change. So if we're going to achieve that, it's not in a politics, a politics to the left, which is so exclusive, which is who's the leftist of us all, which is a blind alley that won't allow us to deliver the big scale of change we need. So it has to be in the same way that for that period from 79 to 2008, there was the collective agreement around this Washington consensus. Now, it wasn't, you know, some of us disagreed with it, but there was that broad agreement. I mean, the Social Democrats adopted it even. We need a similar collective consensus now around this green transition. And it's a difficult thing for us because we have to give it up, exclusive ownership of it. We have to actually celebrate the fact that other parties are going to say, yeah, we're going to do it. And we have to help lead it. So we're just going to be ahead of the posse in terms of, OK, come on, we're all going this direction. And here's where we go. There would be a role for us in politics in that. It wasn't as if, it won't be as if, you know, Fine Gael or Fianna Fáil or Sinn Féin or any of the others are going to come at it with the same experience and maybe commitment that we have. But we don't own it exclusively. And we don't own it exclusively just on the left. It has to belong to the right as well, whatever your definition of that left-right divide is. But does that mean then that your party needs to be more radical on these issues? I mean, many, many moons ago, there was this lengthy debate in green parties across Europe about the, was it the Relos and the Fundies, about whether, you know, to take a more pragmatic approach to having political alliances or or, or taking a a more radical We do. And the scale of the challenge would require you to be radical. And God help us, the other parties are helping us because I'll give you an example last week in our climate committee while it did really good work and we've got a lot of good consensus and a lot of good ideas. When it came to one example, transport, which is probably our biggest difficulty and probably the worst area in terms of our current transport system is dysfunctional. It's leading to gridlock. It doesn't help our society in terms of we're spending so much time stuck in cars, we can't see friends, don't as much time with family. When we came to proffering the solution to that, saying change the transport budget so it's two to one in favour of public transport versus roads and spend 10% on cycling, they accepted the cycling bit, but they voted 16 to four against prioritising public transport. So we still have mainstream parties, Fianna Fáil, Fianna Gael, Sinn Féin, who are absolutely wedded to a motorways first project. And are they wedded just because they're stuck in old school thinking or are they wedded because they're reflecting what they believe is the, are the views of the people who are going to vote for them at the next election? I think Pat's analysis is right. It's the latter. And I think that's ultimately we have to change. We have to change public opinion. We have to change the public understanding of that away from yet more roads is going to serve my interests to, do you know what? The Greens are right. It is about creating urban environments where it's a joy to live in a traffic calmed, not car dominated street. And until we get that broad public understanding and, and belief in that, we're not going to get the political capital to make the scale of change. But isn't one of the potential... Sorry, Pat, There's also a kind of a realism required. I mean, the, the, there's two challenges. There's the exclusively political challenge, which is trying to win 
more seats, trying to manoeuvre yourself into government after the uh, after the next election, and then work the mechanics of government and the politics of government to achieve uh, to achieve green ends. But there's also the challenge of winning the public debate mm-hmm. and convincing people. Uh, that you know that they will have to pay more, that they should pay more for their fossil fuels and uh, and and so forth, and, and all kinds of things that they like from foreign holidays, jetting around the place to eating steaks to doing all kinds of things. Yeah, but ultimately, in, in, and maybe one of the lessons we've learned from the mistakes we've made over the years, I think the environmental movement has come around to realise a number of things. Firstly, if we're going to achieve that, if we're going to stop going from A to unsustainable B, you have to have a better alternative C. It can't be just hardship you're offering people. And I think there is a real case when you're investing in the likes of public transport that it is actually a better system. But secondly, we can't put all the emphasis and blame on the individual. It can't be a holier than thou, me, telling you what to do. You have to ask people for help. You have to listen to them. You have to admit you don't know everything. We're going to have to learn by doing on this. It's, it's an iterative process. Um, and you have to bring it back home. You don't just speak about big, lofty kind of planetary issues. You've got to bring it back to your own local street, your own local area. It's, it's age-old political. Anyone in politics knows that's what you have to do anyway. But I think we can do that. I think there is a turn. I think it's even in the last five, six months, I think those climate strikes are significant. A young generation is really clearly, like they came into the committee last meeting last week, and they're brilliant because they just looked straight in the face. You start doing it. Stop. You're messing with our future. Like this is... You're not giving us a future. You're not giving. You're wrecking our future. Stop it. Change. And I think that's a fairly clear, straight down the middle message that won't be ignored that easily. So let's look at the concrete issue, which is really on the political agenda at the moment, which is the approach the state takes to increasing carbon tax over mm. an incremental ten year, ten year period, or or whatever it is. Um, that seems to me to sort of crystallise a lot of these issues. And we look at what happened in France with the carbon tax. And we know um, that Irish spatial planning has been a disaster for decades and that therefore our population is dispersed around the country in a way which is not optimal for delivering the kind of public transport, quality public transport you're talking about, which does leave people reliant on the private car um, for the foreseeable future. It's very difficult to see how you're going to get them out of their cars. And that these are the people who are, uh, as they would see it, uh, with some justification, the losers out of uh, a drastic increase in, in carbon tax because of where they've ended up living through no fault of their own. And that, um, as happened in France, you can see a resentment bubbling up against people who are seen as bohemian, bourgeois, living in you know leafy South Dublin green voting constituencies uh, as against people like who him. have to climb, like, him and like me, like you, um, and, and people who have to climb into their cars and commute for you know for an hour and a half every day to work and get their kids to school in the car because there is no other option for them there right now and they're the ones who will suffer most. Now how do we how do we square that? Avoid the mistakes that Macron made for a start. We're not rushing into it. We're listening to different views. There's still five months of, of further analysis. Um, make sure that I mean my answer to that is is give the money back. In anything you raise, because you get the price signal that helps steer you in the right direction of the long term, but by returning it, 
you do benefit all the analysis shows lower and lower incomes. And I keep asking my colleagues on the left, and then listen, this is progressive. Show me how it isn't progressive. Explain to me how this isn't progressive. It is progressive. It returns money to the lower income people. It's what Kay Rayworth, Kate Rayworth, the great green economist, is saying we should do. It's, it's what Richard Doutwe, the other great green economist, said. But And it's socially progressive. But aside from that and separate to that, there are real issues in terms of particularly rural Ireland that you need to do more than that. And I think we should be targeting two things. The two big initiatives, there are several big initiatives. One is in public transport, obviously. The other is in retrofitting people's homes. I think we should systematically say the first homes we really go for are those in one-off houses in rural Ireland. For a variety of reasons. Firstly, if we try to add building workers into Dublin at the moment, we couldn't, we've nowhere to house them. If we're going to have to bring back plumbers and engineers and, and building people from less Australia... It's far easier to bring back a Kerry fellow from Australia, a girl, and say, you're going to be able to stay in Kerry at rents that some, doesn't cripple you. So let's target rural Ireland first and do the retrofit to rural. And also rural houses are slightly easier to do because if you've got a terrace street in Dublin, it's tricky. You've got to get the whole terrace to agree. It's hard to put in a heat pump or hard to put in five electric vehicle charging points because how do you even manage that? So there's big advantages in going rural Ireland first. And secondly... Like we have a good national planning framework. There was a new national planning framework that said all the right things about we have to move back close to the centre of our towns and villages. We've got to lower our carbon, lower the commutes. Now, listen, either we're serious about it or not. The National Development Plan just threw it away. It just went back to more roads everywhere, please, and, and didn't even consider climate change. It, there was no climate assessment of our National Development Plan. It was only agreed a year ago by Fine Gael. That whole plan has to change. And in changing it, we should take this Rural Development Fund, which I think is a good initiative, and say every penny of it goes back into the main streets of those 19th century towns so that we use our historical legacy buildings to provide housing, really high quality housing, properly retrofitted with a fibre optic cable stuck into the house as well as a solar panel on the roof. And bring life back to our towns. And the towns that are doing it, this is not, come back to us saying this is not a hardship. If you look at, give choice, look at Clonakilty in West Cork. Like, it's, a, it's a fantastic town that's turned around because they did that. They brought life back to the centre. They created a pedestrian friendly centre. And they have a thousand people now working in, in the in industrial estate on the outside of town, on the on, close to the town, because they were good at planning. You look at, and I could keep going on, people know the difference between towns that have done that and towns that haven't. So let's concentrate on rural Ireland in doing that and then make sure that you've got a really good public transport system to every one of those rural towns. So there is that old adage that the Greens are against agriculture, the Greens are against rural Ireland. The Green, it's actually the exact opposite. We want first and foremost to prioritise those towns and those communities in the transition. And I think in doing that, hope say to people, this is not some urban elite telling you what to do. This is actually the future of rural Ireland. So just to clarify in terms of the kind of the choices that are being faced by the political parties at the moment, there's a division, Pat, between Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil about what should be done with the proceeds of a carbon tax. Fine Gael says give it back to people. There is. Um, and Fianna yeah. Fáil say ring fence it, probably for some of the investment which Emma just mentioned. Yeah, there. There, 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 there is a division, but the big division actually is um, because they eventually fell down on one side of voting for the carbon tax at the... Uh, uh, on the committee, there's a bigger division between them and the uh, and Sinn Fein and the smaller parties of the left who voted uh, voted against it on the committee. And there is a suspicion that at least uh, among some of the independents and the smaller parties on the left, what they want out of the carbon tax is an, another is a rerun of the water charges, which turbo which sparked widespread protests and turbocharged their support. Hmm. 
because one of the things for water charges, uh, whatever about the way it was rolled out in the end, part of its function was not just to fund our water service, but it was a, as a kind of a nudge to behaviour to encourage, you know, to encourage or discourage wastage and so and, on and so and forth. Can, and a carbon tax is a nudge tax, isn't it? Yeah, it is, yeah, and hopefully we're in the lesson. Like behavior. the water charges was put through with a guillotine, where the you know was it was just Phil Hogan and Alan Kelly was just forcing things through. That's not been done on this occasion. We're looking at, we're bringing in all the experts, look at all the options, look at all the alternatives, and hopefully the lesson can be learnt in a way where we still manage, we have to do it by October in my mind, um, and try and do that in a way, everyone's agreed, like the debate last week was all about how do you protect those on lower incomes, how do you protect people in rural Ireland. That's the only debate. And if we can provide an answer to that, hopefully we can avoid the mistakes that were made in the water charges issue. And, and, And critically, By getting this kind of sorted in that way and agreeing, okay, 10 years incremental increase, actually focus on the really big interventions. Because in truth, the revenue to be raised or the money, whatever, it's actually only a small part of the change that's coming. Come back to what I was saying there about retrofitting our houses. Like we one and a half million houses to retrofit. We have to stop burning fossil fuels within a couple of decades. That requires a major job on every one of those houses. It's about a 50 billion euro project. Like it's not small. And that's just one project. And probably that will require a huge amount of low cost financing to make it easy for householders to do it. Householders don't have the 30 grand you'd need in cash to be able to do it. So we have to set up a financing mechanism to do it. Similarly in public transport, like to provide the really high quality public transport everywhere, it's a massive investment project and it's the state has to lead it. And similarly, like to do what we're planning to do, like we'll put five gigawatts of offshore wind in the Irish Sea and 15 off the West Coast. Like that's a huge project. That's beyond anything we've done before in engineering terms, but that's what we want and need to do. Now, That requires the state and the political system to step up and and organise it and finance it and get it all done. If if we spend the next 10 years arguing about carbon tax, we won't actually do the big projects which we need to do. So getting it agreed and getting it agreed in a kind of a 10-year incremental increase means that the budget debate starts to focus on the big issues, which is about retrofitting our housing, changing Irish agriculture, a completely different forestry system, a completely different waste collection management system, a completely different public transport system. Like We've got lots to do. And carbon tax is actually not the most important. It might give us about 5 to 10% of the change. But we've got a 70% gap. Like the National Development Plan, as I said, Fine Gael ignored climate up in the last month. They, they had no attention to it in their development plan. We know for 2030 what our target is. We know we've only a third of the way there within existing plans. So we've got a 70% gap to close. Carbon tax might close 5 or 10% of it for you, still leaving you 60% to do. That's the debate we need to have. How do we close that gap? Because the only other way we could close it is pending about eight or nine, seven, eight hundred, nine million euros a year, paying someone in Slovenia to do it, and we'll buy the credits back off them. That would be the real crime, political shame, if if it ended up being the solution that the Irish people have to turn to. Pat, do you have faith in the ability of the Irish system to deliver what Eamon just described there? Well, I think a certain amount of it will become inevitable because of the the international agreements and so forth uh, that we are signed up to, and 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 if the evidence of you know year to year of climate change on weather accelerates as it appears to have done in the last uh, the last couple of years, I think that'll make it easier for governments to do. And Eamon has described a very ambitious policy agenda there, but it's complex and there's a lot of nitty gritty, but it's not enormously different difficult. To do. I mean, you know what has to be done. It's not a massive scientific challenge no. to retrofit 
houses. That's something that requires hands-on government action. It requires money and that. But it's not enormously difficult. It's not a very difficult political sell either because you are giving You're people something. You're employing people to go out and do this yeah. work and so, it has an economic so impact. I, I, so I, I, I think more than anything what is required is it mo- needs to move up the priority list and for that to happen Eamon needs governments. to have more seats and be Eamon needs to have more seats he needs to, com- he needs to convince six seats more people 10 years ago 2 seats now can it get back to 6 at least at the next election Senior green sources that I spoke to in advance of the uh, of the article suggested a target of 5% and 6 seats. That seems to me to be not the most ambitious thing that I've ever heard, but is realisable in the short term. So yeah, I think that is, that is doable. I think there's a strong chance he may lead the Green Party into the next government. And at that point, it becomes a, a challenge of high politics to manoeuvre that next cabinet into doing these things. We'll leave that as the last word on this. Eamon and Pat, thanks very much for joining us. And that's it for today's podcast. Thanks to our producer, Jennifer Ryan, and our engineer, JJ Vernon. Remember, you can subscribe to us on iTunes or whatever your preferred podcast provider might be. You can find us at irishtimes.com slash podcast. You can mail me at hlinhan at irishtimes.com or you can usually find me on Twitter. Until the next time, thanks for listening.